Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is me, Tracy McCormick. She's a real food and autoimmune cooking expert, a food makeover consultant, and a community food advocate. She lived for years with painful chronic autoimmune disease, and because she had two young daughters to care for, she refused to accept an imminent cancer diagnosis. Since traditional medicine couldn't help, she realized it was up to herself to heal herself. In the spirit of Hippocrates, who said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, she learned to cook using whole foods and created a collection of healing recipes and cooking techniques that are the core of her new book called My Kitchen Cure, How I Cooked My Way Out of Chronic Autoimmune Disease with Whole Foods and Healing Recipes. Welcome me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here today. Boy, that t- title, especially the, the tagline, is a mouthful. Now, <laughs> I, I found your personal story that starts the book absolutely riveting. It was a real hero's journey. Tell us about the autoimmune disease that started this all. Um, well, it was a long diagnosis, but to get to the diagnosis, it was incredibly long. And basically what I suffered from is a digestive autoimmune disease, which was believed to be Crohn's disease, but I didn't have um, typical or traditional Crohn's uh, symptoms, and I didn't have the gene for Crohn's disease, as my mother had Crohn's disease, but I did not have the gene. And so it took a long time, over 10 years, to diagnose me. And what it really means is that I had a hole, the total circumference in, my, in the lining of my small intestine. And so I had been hemorrhaging and seeping um, nutrition for, it, I would say it was more like 14 years. Wow. Mm. I was starving to death slowly, gradually. And, it, and it, the thing with autoimmune disease is now what I know is it's very hard to diagnose autoimmune diseases because each human body and each immune system has a different way of working and reacting to situations. So one person's symptoms are not another person's. And autoimmune disease is really um, the combination of a perfect storm. So the type of autoimmune disease that one will come down with depends on their history, depends on their physical constitution, meaning how their body functions. It depends on the chemicals that they've been exposed to, the environment in which they live, the level of emotional stress, the way that their bodies process emotional stress, and then, of course, the diet, and then the major um, bacteria and viruses that we're, we're exposed to naturally. So all of this comes together, and depending on what fits your profile will be the type of autoimmune disease that you get because there's more than 100 autoimmune diseases, and they're all under an umbrella of autoimmune. And what happens is once you have one, you are susceptible to 100, acquiring up to 100 of those diseases. And it's um, it's like a breach in the, uh, in the immune levy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And depending on... How you, what you're exposed to continually is what will, is where your body's health will go, the direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And modern medicine is like sticking your finger in a dike. Well, well it's just, yeah, it's just a complicated, you know, it's very complicated for modern medicine to deal with this because yeah. it's, each individual is different. And, you know, how they're going at it, like how do you deal with the immune system overreacting instead of what caused it, 
where's the root of it, and how do you bring the immune system into balance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. without wiping out the immune system with immune suppressants. And right <laughs> yeah. now, that's the current treatment is to completely annihilate the immune system and to suppress it 100%. But without an immune system, you can't fight things like cancer. So that's why a lot of those drugs lead to things like, they'll say, a side effect lymphoma. Well, who wants lymphoma? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, going through really years of horrific chronic pain, you prayed at the Shrine of the Virgin in Mexico and you vowed that you would help others if you could be cured. It reminded me of another Hippocrates quote, prayer indeed is good, but while calling on the gods, a man should himself lend a hand. Mm. So what was the turning point for you? When did you decide to take your healing into your own hands? Um, Well, I had watched my mother suffer a very slow, painful, horrific death of autoimmune disease. She didn't die of the autoimmune disease. She actually was killed in a car accident at 39. But from the time she was 25 until her death at 39, it it wasn't much living. Um, She was, it was hard for her to interact with us. She was a single parent. She wasn't able to participate. And uh, we were very poor and very hungry, and I stood in the corner helpless, as most children of parents with chronic disease, which is now 75 million people have autoimmune disease. And so that means there's a lot of children watching their parents suffer. Mm -hmm. And I was helpless. And when I got sick, all of the drugs were lined up, and they were immune suppressants. And one doctor was telling me I should take this long-term chemo pill. They were all lined up. And I thought, I can't take these. I can't swallow water. If I swallow these pills, I'll die. I'll never survive the side effects. And I had images of my mother. And so I heard a voice, and the voice was my deep inside voice that said, what's in it? And I got online, and I started researching the names of the drugs, and it was difficult because drugs have patents on them. And, but I could find side effects. And, then that que- and I knew I wouldn't survive it. And then that question of what's in it, I applied to my food. I thought, well, the only thing I can control is what touches the lining of my intestines. And then I, I, what's in it led me to the person that I am, and I started researching food and what food does and how it works, and then I connected to a woman who was a leading macrobiotic food specialist, and I started in macrobiotics. That's not where I ended, but that was my beginning. That was my foundation, and a key, key foundation, an amazing place to start. And I gradually started to learn to cook because I didn't cook. I was a processed food junkie, and I shopped via the picture on the box. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about, about it. Uh, part of your, um, an integral part of your journey, really, was your marriage to your husband, Lee. And um, he has an interesting story as well because... His family were cattle ranchers, Mm -hmm. and I was so impressed that he shifted his aspect of the business from feedlot to organic grass-fed beef raising. Right. Um, Well, as as I embarked on this journey with food, and he started to watch me get well, I mean, and I'm telling you, it's immediate. Within a week, I was turning a corner. It, I was really? off the floor. Oh, within a week I was off the floor. Within two weeks I was standing longer and able to stand longer and cook. It doesn't mean I didn't hit the floor a bunch of times, but I was able to get back up. I was able to go in my kitchen. And so he and then I went from not being able to eat an eighty nine pounds to eating full plates of food for the first time in our marriage in ten years. 
And so he, and as I was learning and I was just researching what was going on with food and I started watching documentaries and we are, we are cattle ranchers and uh, a large cattle ranch at that. And as I was learning, he was learning on his own. He was researching, he was finding out things. And finally, we knew that we had to be instrumental in our community in changing the culture of our farm and how, because we are the influencers in our community. And so he did. He changed the cattle ranch to grass-fed, and we connected with a man out of South Africa and uh, who's a major cattle rancher, and he would come and taught us mob grazing, which is amazing for the environment, for the ozone layer, for the air that we breathe, and for the land. And we became mob grazers, and now we are the leading grass-fed cattle ranchers in our area, and we host workshops, and we bring farmers from all over the country to learn about how to shift the way that they rear their animals and livestock. So, yeah, he's a pretty amazing person. But he's a man who believes in change, and he believes people can change. And his faith is placed in that. And, uh, and it, really, it really helps me fortify mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, uh, didn't you run a rehab center with him? Yes, we own. Uh-huh. My husband started the recovery ranch. It's uh, located on our cattle ranch. And it's been there for, I don't know, maybe almost 15 years now. And he also owns the Integrative Life Center in Nashville. And uh, he started treatment centers on the West Coast in their holistic approaches to treatment. And that means that they look at the whole person and the whole person's life experience and how they'll navigate back in the world once they leave treatment. So, yeah, he really, uh, and that I applied that when I wrote this book. The book is written in three parts, which publishers said, oh, you can't do that. A food book can't be a memoir. Well, <laughs> in this type of food book, it has to be because I watched people change their addictions, and I realized I had to apply that. So part one is story, because you have to have a mirror. Not someone to tell you, but someone to show you their journey. And then part two, that inspires the change. And then part two, we need to know why. We need our facts. You know, I needed facts. I needed to know what I was eating and why it was hurting my body. When you eat pesticides and additives, the immune system goes into alert. Well, if you have an autoimmune disease, you just start, you created a flare-up. Boom! the second you put cottonseed oil in your mouth because it's not a food. And the body is wired for nature and for eating natural foods. And then part three is recipes, and that's your how. So, you know, you lead people to water, you inspire them through your own journey by being the person that, you know, you have to be your greatest self. And then you have the why, and then you have the how. And then they have a choice. And once we we're given a choice, then there's a freedom that occurs and there isn't judgment and there isn't pressure and there, you know, the doubt is sort of eased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of the worst foods when it comes to autoimmune disease? Pesticides, uh, additives, preservatives, they're horrible. You know, we automatically want to trigger, we want to focus on sugar, wheat, and dairy right now. Yes, sugar throws an imbalance in the digestive tract. All autoimmune, there's a, oh, I wish I could remember the name of the book. There are a bunch of doctors right now who are proving this theory that's my theory, that um, leaky gut. So there's a weakness in in an imbalance in the immune system. The basis of the immune system is the small intestines. And when those villi, that's what grabs our nutrition, and pulls it through a main vein through the liver, it aren't functioning, you can't get well from anything. No disease. Mm-hmm. And really eating for the digestive tract is key. And sugar um, throws an imbalance there, and it feeds the unhealthy bacteria that gnaw up the lining of the intestines. And so, but the real thing is paying attention to, in paying attention to eating 
foods that are full of additives, preservatives, and chemicals, pesticides. Your body, like I said earlier, is ready to receive natural nourishment. The alarm system, which is the immune system, goes into overdrive every time you put something in your mouth that isn't a natural food. That's how we were created. And whatever created us, I'm comfortable with anybody's theory on that. You know, for me, it's God, but it's okay, whatever you want to call it. But our bodies were created to receive natural foods. And so you setting an alarm off, and then that alarm system, the body's taxed. And then when you eat too much dairy, you create um, a mucus that covers the villi and the lining of the digestive tract, and then that villi can't function. So it's excess. You know, really the issue is excess. What is your excess? And being mindful of your own personal excess. And once you have that mindfulness, then you can start to shift your foods. And not thinking about what you can't have, but think of all the foods that you haven't had. And that would be so good for your body. So learning to rotate your foods is mega. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I have um, five grandchildren, and out of those, two have um, uh, celiac uh, and Crohn's. And, I mean, the, the, the percentage of people affected by these diseases has just skyrocketed. And will continue to, sadly, will continue to, as, you know... So, again, you have the perfect storm of what you were exposed to, what your parents were exposed to, the immune system you inherited, which is your constitution, and then you have the diet. And in children, it's horrific. Children are born with their immune systems half-baked. So when your baby comes home, you don't expose them to anything because they're not, they haven't developed an immune system. So the first five years of a child's life is about building the immune system and strengthening it. Well, children today, the mother doesn't, not every mother, but most, most people, and I'm in that category, aren't eating for wellness, complete wellness, a congruent wellness, full circle wellness. You know, they think chicken and salad is healthy. Oh, that's it. And that becomes their food rut. And then the children are born. And in this country, in Mexico, for example, they, feel, they feed babies the broth from black beans to build their iron. Well, here we give a baby a bottle of apple juice. A one-year-old has juice. Oh, and that's sugar. It's pure liquid sugar. A one, you know, we give them dairy, which covers the lining. We, um, and then once they're one and they can chew, they're eating. And these are my kids. I did this. I'm speaking personally. You know, a chicken nugget, a French fry. You look at the kids' menu, and it's horrific. It is the state of a child's diet. Go into a restaurant, look at the menu. It's chicken nuggets, pasta, tacos, pizza, hamburgers, corn dogs. That's wheat, it's sugar, it's chemical, it's pesticide, it's processed, and that is all they eat. They eat pasta, they eat wheat, that's it. So they're in natural food ruts, and so they're, they don't have a shot in the dark. And then they get a nasty bacteria in their digestive tract, and that bacteria is fed sugar. It's fed wheat, which mows the villi down. It's an abrasive grain. It's not, it's not the devil. It's not the cause of all evil, but it is an abrasive grain. And when children, you know, my Lola, her favorite meal, if I fed her every day, she'd be happy as a clam. Toast, French toast for breakfast, pancakes, uh, cheese crackers at snack. And then if I'd give her a sandwich, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch, more crackers, chips, and then pasta for dinner, she's happy. I mean, that's her ideal diet. Put some butter and cheese on it, and she's good. 
and it and that's what happens. So children aren't supported. Their immune systems aren't supported. They're not even introduced to green foods. In fact, the new thing for every every time I see a television chef that says, I've got a recipe and I'm going to hide the greens. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you hiding them? Then you wonder when they're 23 why they won't eat greens. Mm. You didn't introduce it to them. You were dishonest. And yeah. then you have to empower children and say, these are what we're eating. This is why we're eating it. Take a bite. And then you're consistent. And then every week we put it on the plate. Every Twice a week I put it on the plate, a new food. They don't have to eat it all. There's no war. There's no battle. There's no wrong. But then they form a relationship with it. But if it's hidden inside of a pseudo chicken nugget, <laughs> some kind of chocolate chip cookie, we're shocked that they don't want to eat greens when they're 12 and you can't make them take a bite anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we we too, as parents, we too often take the path of least resistance, and you know, just give in to our kids instead of leading them, um, as as you say, and, and and teaching them. Yeah, we have to we have to lead them. You know, I always say they're like little tyrants. They don't have any information. They have absolutely zero knowledge of nutrition and wellness. And yet, they don't have car keys. They don't have ATM cards. They don't have jobs. But they're the ones demanding what they're going to eat. And it's like, you know what? They may scream for two days, but you're 30. They're three. You know? <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> I mean, it's just an absurd conversation that I swear I must have. I have two little girls. I must have it three times a day when I go in public and people find out what I do. Oh, my gosh. I could never get them to eat it. I'm like, really? My grandmother said, eat it. <laughs> and you know what? I ate it or I went hungry. And one time I did that with Lola. That's what I had to finally do. And she didn't want to eat it, so I took it away. And then my husband finished her plate. Because that was all. I had made a small amount of food. And then she came out at like 7 o'clock and said, okay, I'm hungry. Can I have cereal? I said, no. And she said, where's my plate? And I said, Daddy ate it. And she went in her room hysterical that she was going to starve to death. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to die. You're killing me. And I was like, no, you're going to see that you have to eat what's in front of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, what were some of your biggest challenges in adapting to this new way of eating? Oh, I was so intimidated. I was insanely intimidated. I was intimidated by new foods. I was intimidated in how to cook. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, I ain't. You know, I didn't grow up in an environment where this was around me. I grew up in the opposite environment. You know, I'm a, I grew up in a food desert on food stamps. So I didn't know how to cook. I shot by the picture and just learning how to run a kitchen. I mean, really run your kitchen is an amazing skill. It's the greatest skill you can bring to your family. Like how to run it, how to cook, how to get timely, how to get organized. Um, and then, you know, the craving. I mean, I, I, the cravings. I loved a fish sandwich from McDonald's. The cravings and just learning to say, nope, it's going to hurt me. Nope, it's going to hurt me. No, it's going to hurt me. And then... That changed my relationship with my self-care and my self-love. The first time, 100%, I wasn't going against me. I wasn't hurting me, not just in a food level, but in a mental level. You know, I was supporting me. I was taking care of me. And every time I would cook, I was doing something for me first. Because if I don't have my food and I don't eat for that day, I'm not okay for my family. So it was placing me first. And it, it, it's completely shifted the person that I am in the world. 
in my day to day events. I take care of me. I say no. I say that doesn't work for me. That's not good for me on many levels. So that was that was a challenge. Getting my mind right was gigantic. Well, I think that that's a lesson that all of us um, need to take on board because even when it's the little cheats that we do, you know, taking that chocolate chip cookie or when when you're out ordering the the, the deep fried whatevers instead of something more wholesome. You know, uh, deep fried was my craving, by the way. That would be harder than sugar, harder than dairy, because I have a dairy allergy, mm-hmm. uh, which I we knew I had as a child, but we were too poor to be mindful of it. I mean, my mom couldn't buy any other type of milk. It was milk, and I had to eat it in my cereal, which exasperated the illness in my intestines because it weakens your immune system. When you eat things you have a sensitivity to, you're weakening the immune system because they're working on countering that sensitivity or allergy. Um, but the fried food, I mean, that's, that's I love to paint another picture, but it, that was it. The French fries, the fried fish, the fried chicken, fried food, that was my weak thing. I wonder what it is in the human psyche that something crunchy is just so attractive. Uh, it's just this, it's the it's the mindless satisfaction that goes on when you're chewing crunchy, you know, and and it's the smell and it's the smell is associated with your comfort, you know, yeah. what is comfortable to you? Where were you safest? You were safest in a house where fried food was prepared, you know. Where do you feel the most regular? Eating fried fish or fried chicken, and I think regular is is a great thing, but we have to shift our concept of that. Mm. Changing our comfort foods. That's what I'm doing with my girls. Now their concept of comfort food is, you know, is a yummy bean chili with miso and hijiki. They know that's it. Sauerkraut. Wow. So I'm changing their ideas. You actually have some tips for adapting comfort foods to healthy foods in your recipes. Give us some examples. Well, you know, I just finished a culinary, a professional culinary program uh, that's French and American classic foods. And what I, I really did that program so I could go incognito, which I did, and I could learn all the basics of, of culinary school and shift recipes. And it's, it's changed the way I cook. My next food book, forget it. I mean, I've just become a phenomenal cook. I'm, I'm shocked to say it. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm bragging, girl. I'm bragging. Um, but what I do is um, I change things. Like, so if I made chili, well, or I would have put, you know, there's nothing wrong with grass-fed beef because I'm not a vegan. Um, but, you know, I try to eat plant-based the majority of the time. And so I will add at the end of the chili, I add in miso, soy-free chickpea miso, which is probiotic. I'll add hijiki into it. Hijiki is a sea vegetable that has packed with trace minerals and iodine. So that's an immune booster. That's great for the thyroid. That's, uh, it, it's got calcium and magnesium in it, which helps ease pain. I use lentils, the combination of lentils in your chili and hijiki. If you've got aches and pains, rheumatoid arthritis, you want to eat that. And it also is great for the digestive tract because lentils are pretty easy, easy to digest, and they keep cleaning out that lining. They keep it all moving. Mm-hmm. And so I just shift things and add things. And my training in macrobiotic 
mixed with French and American classics has been fantastic. So a comfort food to me is tomato soup. I would love a can of Campbell's tomato soup. So one day I thought, you know what? I'm going to make it, but I'm not going to use dairy, and I'm not going to use tofu, which is an easy remedy. What I did is I added millet, and millet is an alkaline grain, and it's really great for the digestive tract, super great, and diabetics can actually eat this grain. Um, and then in the end, I also added soaked cashews to make it cheesy and creamy. And then I add nutritional yeast, which is packed with B vitamins. And then miso in the end, which again adds another layer of cheesy, creamy, and probiotic. And you puree it. And you have the most amazing tomato soup that people cannot believe has no dairy in it. So things like that, like fortifying your recipes and shifting out the things that are high, hard to digest or have an unhealthy fat content. That's been big. And, and my concept of fat content isn't from a weight loss point of view. I do not think about calories at all. I have no idea. I do not think about fat as in gaining fat, eating fat. I think about fat from the point of view, is it digestible fat? So I look at my foods as I'm going to cook with this oil because it's an oil that my body can use, can receive, and can absorb and has a purpose. So when I use, when I talk about cooking with fats, and I change, and that was the thing in French cooking, you know, you would make something with a half and half for a cream, mm-hmm. a half cream. Well, I would try if the flavor allowed, you use coconut milk, organic. You can make your own from coconut and coconut water in a Vitamix, or you can buy native uh, foods, which has no BPA in the lining and no additives, and you use coconut milk. And then what that does is it has a really high uh, fat content for whipping and for thickening and for creaming things. Cashews are fantastic for the same reason. So, you know, figuring out that and thinking about fat from that point of view that's where the weight loss and the body image is supported because Mm -hmm. you're not thinking about it from, am I going to eat this and have less calories? I'm going to eat this and this food has a purpose and a job. And when it has a purpose and a job, it doesn't hang out on the side. It goes to work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, You were talking about seaweed, and I noticed that you are pretty strong in recommending adding seaweed to soaking water for all of your beans and and nuts and seeds. Tell us why you need to soak them. Well, you soak them, and in ancestral cultures, meaning in pretty much any third world culture that you travel to, they soak all their legumes and their grain. And they soak them because that allows them to be more digestible. So they still have a relationship with, if I eat this, it'll easily my body will receive it with ease. And so when you soak things with kombu seaweed, for example, your beans, you soak them overnight, you add that in, it helps break down the hard-to-digest carbohydrates, and it also adds trace minerals. So you're sort of fortifying your food in a natural way, and that's why I use them. And I am. I'm a big proponent of sea vegetables. I just... They've been key. When I don't feel well and I feel out of balance and I make something with one of them, I always feel right right as rain. Mm -hmm. Now, in our modern busy lives, a lot of us think that um, we're really too pressed for time to cook from scratch. Yet that's really the only way that you're going to pull together 
the nutrition you need to to have the energy to live your busy lives. Well, that, that's the whole thing, right? So the conversation about time is it's really, again, goes back to getting your mind right. So when your mind's right, your table's right. So you got to get your mind right. you got to figure out what do you value. Do you value feeling well? Do you value participating 100% in your life? Do you value your children's wellness? Do you value your husband's wellness, your mother's wellness, your sister's wellness, whoever lives in your home? And once you get that right, you make time because either you're going to save time on the front end or you're going to lose time on the end. So meaning, you know, it used to be, will I get sick? Now it's, when will I get sick? Americans are really settling into the to a comfort with illness. You know, 75 million people have autoimmune disease. You know, two out of three men will have cancer or three out of three. It's something insanely ridiculous, whatever that number is. And so we're living in the times of disease and dis-ease. And it's really going to come down to the person that says, what do I value and what is my value? And you just organize your time. I'm actually super busy, busier than I've ever been in my entire life right now. I'm probably working 40 hours a week. I have two children. My husband and I are living in two places. So most of the time I'm a single mother and I am more organized now with my food than I've ever been in my life. And I show up at the dance studio with my kids and all the moms are frazzled and crazy and going and going. My kids eat dinner at 4 p.m. every day. Four o'clock, they eat a full meal. And they do that because in the morning, I get up super early, I've prepared my food, I build off of the foods that I made yesterday, I add fresh foods to them, and I run the kitchen. And there is no crazy five o'clock, what are we gonna eat? We've been at Target, we've been at soccer. Four o'clock, we come home, we do homework, we eat at four, and then they go to dance until seven o'clock at night. And so what it's done for me is it's empowered me because I know that this is what I value. And so maybe my kids can't do dance in soccer because I can't do that. They don't have to do everything. They have to do one thing really well, and first they have to eat well. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out where are you placing your time because your life is your time. Your time is your life. And what, what do you value? Indeed. Give us some tips on what foods one should incorporate into your diet to balance the immune system. What, what are tips to balance the immune system? First of all, eating probiotics. Ah, this is a huge thing for me. I tried to take probiotic pills for years because every, everybody and now even MDs push probiotics, which is great. Except for the problem is when you take a probiotic in a capsule form, is it matching the diet that you're eating? It's also, it's also can be very high cultural level. So it could be 25 billion cultures of you know, lactobacillus. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, when you do that and you put it into the digestive tract, it's sort of, it's an imbalance maker right there. So what I did, and it creates chaos. You know, you can have too much healthy, too much bad. I mean, it's a, it's a dance getting that, that flora right. And so what dawned on me working with the um, nutritionist that, and the mineralist that tends to our livestock, and we have horses, pigs, sheep, cows, I have everything, dogs, and when one of our animals gets sick, he comes in and we know to change their minerals. So rotate your foods and get all the minerals you need. And he treats them with a probiotic that he crafts specifically for what they're eating. 
So if they're in a certain pasture and that grain has a, that grass has a certain nutritional profile, then he cultivates a probiotic to match that nutritional profile. And when I told him, you know, I can't take probiotics, and he said, of course not. He said they're mass-produced and they're just, you're throwing in 25 billion live cultures all at once. You're going to have a war. It's going to hurt. So what I did is I eat probiotic foods. I eat fermented sauerkrauts. I eat umeboshi plums. I eat uh, coconut kefir water and drink it. I eat miso. Um, I do the soy-free miso right now because I'm being careful with my soy, mindful with my soy is a better word. And um, I use coconut aminos. So I'm adding in probiotic foods. And so when you do that, what's happening is you get a different culture and a different strain of that culture each time you eat it. So if I have a jar of sauerkraut this week or for the first three, four days this week, next week's sauerkraut, I usually buy it from the farmer's market from someone that specializes in fermented foods or whole foods has bubbies. It's going to have a different profile. So you're gradually, you're eating it with your food. It's gradually shifting the colony in your intestines and it's supporting the body. And then the rotation of the food is goes back to shifting the foods that you're eating all the time. So in the high season on our farm, that means when the grass is growing the most, we move our cattle three times a day. Well, why do we do that? Because each pasture has a different nutritional profile. One pasture gets a lot of sun, so it has a lot of chlorophyll. One pasture, say, has a lot of water. That changes the grass. Another pasture has a lot of shade. And so you just keep moving those animals to keep them in their wellness so that they're rotating their food. Well, the same applies to us, avoiding the food rut, changing your food constantly, and trying to eat your way into wellness. And that keeps you cooking-wise always trying something new. And so what I do with the kids is I have a calendar, and we'll eat this this week, and then the next week they'll say, oh, Mama, we haven't had kale in a while. Mama, we haven't had cauliflower. Oh, we should do that. And it's, it sort of becomes this mindfulness that becomes a part of the way that you eat. Like, what do I need? You think about what do I need for my wellness, not what am I craving. And what you need is truly your craving. Mm-hmm. It, it totally boggles the mind to think of a child saying, oh, Mama, we haven't had kale. I know. <laughs> it's funny. Oh, she's, they're hilarious. I remember, I remember the day that she was like, could I have more collards? <laughs> I, I was like, hoo, hoo, hoo. Like, wow, how did that happen? I did it. I wanted to tell everyone. It was all over Facebook. She already got her kids to eat collards and they requested it. Or I love it when they'll say, Mama, you haven't made just plain miso soup in a while. I'd like that. Uh-huh. You know, because you're cha- you know, to say that a child isn't receptive is a bull-faced lie. Children are amazing. I've run community kitchens. I've worked in schools. Children receive newness openly. They are in a place in their life of learning. It is the most ample opportunity to introduce them. Usually the issue is with the parents. The mm-hmm. parent has their comfort or he has his comfort, and if it changes, they lose their comfort. Tell us about your community kitchens. Yeah, well, that's just, you know, that's my heart. When I was still 89 pounds, <laughs> when I was off the couch, girl, and I was cooking, I was in a grocery store one day, and I looked in the cart of the people around me, and suddenly I, I was like, whoa, what's going on? Nobody knows. And I was getting well. Um, 
and someone came to me and said there's a church in uh, North Nashville, which was a predominantly African-American community in a food desert, and would I come, and the kids were hungry and uh, after school, and would I come and cook for them and provide food? And I said, I'll come cook, but I won't cook for them. I'll cook with them, and I'll teach them to cook. Mm-hmm. And I was raised in a predominantly African-American community in a food desert. And so in an incredibly intellectual community, which people think it's a conundrum, like how can you be from Oberlin with the most liberal and bright and mindful people and live in a food desert there? It exists. And so I said, well, I'm going in. This is where I'm from. I'm going home. And I would load my car with produce, and I would I started teaching, and I'd go into the street and rally the kids, find hungry kids, find hungry people, and uh, teach them to cook plant-based food. And I'd stand there just, you know, there were days that I was in severe pain, but I knew that that was my service. You know, I had gone to Guadalupe. I had said, please use me. Please allow me to serve. I really believe that our purpose to be here is to be of service to one another and to learn to live in community. That's that's my ideal. And uh, it worked. And soon I was cooking for upwards of 50 people for a dollar a person. And then I went to my husband, and I said, I can't get anybody, any of these local farmers to give me any food. Can we grow food? And now we have 10-acre biodynamic produce that's all for my community kitchens. And uh, then I expanded the community kitchens because as I was beginning to cook on the morning show in Nashville, um, I realized that this isn't a food desert situation, that the average American home is a food desert. Mm. And then I came to Malibu, and I started teaching here and cooking here, and I realized that, in truth, the wealthiest homes are some of the hardest hit because they have options. They can order out. They have people to cook for their kids' nannies and babysitters. They can afford to buy two meals, and they don't really know either. And so now I run community kitchens in, uh, I have one on November 23rd in Nashville on Music Row at the Integrative Life Center, and I can cook with upwards of 150 people. And we, I set up folding tables, butane burners, produce is on the table, chopping boards, knives, and aprons. And people come in, they go to their station. I now have over 20 people in Nashville that I call food angels that have been cooking with me for five years that all cook real fresh food. They bring recipes, and they run a table, and we all cook together, and then we all eat together because I really believe that the only way we will get well is together, that it takes a village, that when I was at my loneliest and my saddest, I would sit at the table alone looking out the window, and I would just dream of an old-fashioned kitchen where you'd go to a woman, and she had the remedy, or she had the conversation, or she she had the love in mm. my kitchens are now those that place that I was looking for. That is so beautiful. I mean, you, you just have this image that, that I'm sure most children no longer have of going into grandma's kitchen and learning from her, you know, the, yes. the, the real art of feeding your family. The art of feeding your family is what it's really about, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, being, and bringing the honor and the nobility back to that. You know, that goes back to the time conversation. People always say, me, how do you, you know, what about your kid? You know, aren't you doing this? No, uh-uh, I'm cooking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My kids are sitting at the counter doing homework and I'm cooking. And I am deeply connected to them. And they know that I love them so much and that I cook this way as an expression of my love. And I think that that's honorable and I think it's noble. 
and I think that maybe my kids don't do as many after-school activities, but the activity they do do is they're with me in the kitchen, and I think it's more important than soccer or dance or music or drill team. They're in that kitchen, and they're running it. Good on you, girl. Yeah, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So where do people go to find out more about you and and your your work? Well, my book is on Amazon, My Kitchen Care on Amazon, and uh, in a few stores. And then also metracy.com, my website, and my community kitchen page is up there. And my goal this year is to really, uh, really spread the community kitchens. You know, I'd like to bring them to 18 cities across the country and eventually to every city. You know, I mean, that's my big dream is to set up community kitchens where people go by choice to grow and expand and to Mm -hmm. regain skills. So if somebody wants to um, maybe set up a community kitchen in their uh, neighborhood, uh, can they contact you through your website? Oh, yeah. There's a community kitchen page. They can email Mm -hmm. me, um, and they can reach out to me. And I'm a Facebook facer and a Twitter. I mean, I've got my Kitchen Cure page on Facebook, and the community is growing. It's about Mm -hmm. 500 new people, new likes a day right now. So I know now that I'm not alone. I'm no longer alone on this path. And there was a time I was. And the blessing of this book is the community that it's building. My Kitchen Cure, how I cooked my way out of chronic autoimmune disease and prevented cancer with whole foods and healing recipes by me, Tracy McCormick. And that's me, M-E-E. And your website, M-E-E-Tracy-T-R-A-C-Y.com. Yeah. Me, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's just wonderful to talk to you. And now I'd like to welcome our next guest, Gregory Malouf, the author of Silent, The Power of Silence. Gregory, welcome. Thank you very much, Miriam. He's coming to us from down under. Whereabouts are you in Australia? I'm in Sydney. It's uh, early in the morning, and a beautiful day it looks like outside, and very uh-huh. sunny, Okay, it's wonderful. Great. Now, you have written a book called Silent, and this book was the expression of some very profound experiences in your life. Tell us about your childhood. You had quite an abusive childhood, didn't you? What effect did that have on how you later related to the people in your life? It's an interesting question because, yes, I do believe that that we all have this past that we, we haven't dealt with. From as far back as I could remember from my earliest days, uh, fear and anxiety virtually governed my life. Now, during my adolescent years, drugs, alcohol and all sorts of crazy things um, numbed the pain that I was feeling. And I was very discontent. But at age 19, it all changed. Uh, I believed money was the answer. I always had believed money was the answer, that it would allow me to escape my past and give me the freedom that I desperately wanted. Uh, It wasn't long after the age of 19 that I became a workaholic, absolutely fixated on achieving material goals, believing that that would solve all my problems. I had no idea that the problems were going to live inside me for the rest of my life or up until the point when... I realised there was another way. From that point, I became very, very successful and and more and more I I denied my past. You know, many of these authors talk about living in the past. 
you know, that we need to, you know, not do that. We don't really understand, I don't think, Miriam, what that actually means or the impact it's had. And I think what we're trying to do through Silent is to help people understand what, what is the impact of living in the past and how it affects our present moment, how we, it virtually obscures it. It's, it blocks our, our seeing, our vision of what is really important in our life. If you ask somebody what they really want in life, I bet pr- very few people would really know how to answer that question. That's the message within Solomon. How do we connect inwardly so that we understand what it is that we truly desire in life? Because when we know what our desires are, we start to value them. And when we start to value them, we truly can expand them in our life. Well, it's easy enough to say um, that we have to connect inside, but how do we go about doing that? Most of us don't even feel comfortable with ourselves. It's a wonderful question. Um, and obviously that's what these books are about, um, the process of being able to do that. And it is very challenging. And even though I've been on this journey now, and I feel like I've been on the journey all my life, that was one of the most challenging things that I, that I had to, to do and still face today, that, you know, how do we stay connected to our inner self and what is all that about? And I hope that the messages within Silent really do help people understand what it is we need to recognise, how to step away from it and how to actually step into the present so that they can see what's really important and live life to the fullest from that point. Because I remember reading, Miriam, I remember reading... Uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle's book and, you know, The Power of Now. Mm-hmm. I actually read it so many times, uh, you know, a really bad period in my life, and I still couldn't understand how you could do that, you know, how you could actually live in the present. And so I started to put the pieces together. I started to put the jigsaw together. I took my part of my life apart, and, you know, as you know, I had a very traumatic childhood um, I grew up with fear and anxiety from the earliest days that I could remember, you know, drugs and alcohol and all sorts of crazy things, you know, through my adolescence years to become a workaholic. You know, money became too important to me mm-hmm. because through money I was going to through money I was going to prove that I was okay. You know, I was gonna find that that level of self-worth that I'd lost in my childhood because I had none. I had no self-worth. Of course, that's not just you, Gregory. I mean, that that's society. Society seems to uh, put a value only on that, on material things. We've lost the the value of 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 connection, of of heart connection, of family, of of friendships. And isn't that what you found when you actually lost it? The, the the amazing thing is that yes, I did lose. You know that that I did lose what I didn't realise I truly valued. I didn't realise. But when you are when you say that we've lost as a as a group thing, we've lost those. You know the true value of family and all the rest of it. I'm not sure that we ever really had it. I think you know we're perfectly imperfect beings that have been passing on these same fear-based lessons to our children generation after generation and the world seems to be a reflection of that fear that we carry and i think it's time because the level of consciousness that's shifting in the world that we we start to work out well what is really important how do we create the life we want how do we live life to the fullest you know because we all want love and acceptance i mean that's inherent in every single one of us you know, love and acceptance lies at the base of everything that we are driven to do. 
everything that we are driven to think, we just don't know how to authentically connect mm-hmm. to love. And we, we don't feel mm-hmm. accepted, you know? And so, you know, why we need to validate. There's a, there's a chapter in my book called People Pollution. I think people will start to, will really connect with it. It seems to be a popular chapter that people really do connect to in my book. And it, and it helps us understand why we need to validate ourselves so often. Why we can't seem to hold our opinions uh, and trust in our own self. Why we can't seem to follow our instincts. And why we need external gratification to feel okay with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, all of those things are not going to help us find sustainable or lasting happiness in our life. They're just not going to do that. And the book and these books are going to help people identify what is important to help us live life to the fullest what is important and what we need to do to to truly value what we have so we can have more of it. Now, no one says we can't have what we want. You know, we can. We just need to know what it is that we truly want, what we truly desire. And these books will really show people uh, the limitations or the limiting beliefs that have been passed on for generations so that they can connect inwardly and start to consciously create the life they want. Well, that sounds like a valuable book indeed. So I'm very grateful that you have written it and that you could join us and tell us about it. So we've been speaking with Gregory Malouf, the author of Silent, The Power of Silence. And Gregory, where do people find out more about this book? Miriam, they could go to the website, uh, Epsilon, E-P-S-I-L-O-N, Healing Academy, one word, dot com. Uh, or just type into Google GregoryMalouf.com. Um, and, of course, on Amazon. All the books will uh, be there. Okay. And people can um, uh, easily find uh, the books through those sources. Super. Gregory, thank you very much for being with us. Miriam, my pleasure, and thank you very much for sharing the message. Well, next week our guest is going to be Dr. Raymond Moody, and we'll be talking about near-death experiences and the new television series that he's creating interviewing people who have had them. And now we're going to close with our track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from the Positive Music Association. This week we hear from John Miller from his album The Next Big Twang. It's called Go Ahead and Laugh About It Now. Don't you hate it when you leave work and you're already late? Then you catch your reflection and you realize you didn't shave. So you hurry to the bathroom and bang a knee on the way. Then you notice your razor is missing its double A's. No need to moan, no need to groan. You'll see. Traffic jam, no need to moan, no need 
traffic clears up and you start making your way. Then you finally get to work and the boss says, isn't this your off day? No need to moan, no need to groan. You'll soon forget it ever happened. Anyhow, in a hundred years, no one will care. So just go ahead and laugh about it now. No need to moan, no need to groan. was Go Ahead and Laugh About It Now by John David Miller from Akron, Ohio. John's roots are in folk music and blues as well as social analysis, philosophy, and mysticism. He's a member of the PMA, a growing group of musicians who use music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. You can learn more about John's music on his website, johnmiller.us, that's J-O-N, M-I-L-L-E-R dot U-S. And you can learn more about the PMA or join them at positivemusicassociation.com. If you're a speaker or musician or looking to book one for your next conscious event, I want you to check out our new sister website, luminaryvoices.com. It's chock full of transformational speakers and musicians, brand new, and we have a special until the end of October, where if you sign up, you get 20% off the membership. So come and visit us at luminaryvoices.com. And for more great books, films, interviews, and reviews, please visit the website for New Consciousness Review. That's at ncreview.com. And remember, we're always looking for reviewers. If you'd like to join our team and build up your collection of books and films, send us an email to reviews at ncreview.com. Well, that's it for our show for this week. I do hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.